This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thou shalt not judge. For our contemporary culture, and especially for the typical university culture, this is sometimes considered to be the first and greatest commandment, perhaps the only commandment. The great sin of our time is to be judgmental, or at least to be regarded as judgmental. It's a kind of capital vice, you might say, of, of, of postmodernity. I think that poses a special challenge for law students and a special challenge for the legal profession more generally, because in fact, as you know well, the law is rife with judgments. And the elite of the legal profession we call judges. And their job is precisely to judge. Okay, so how do we put these things together? How do we understand that? Now, some would argue making judgments in the practice of law or the judgments that the law makes have a different character than moral judgments, properly so-called. And when we say thou shalt not judge, we're really talking about moral judgments, not these other kind of judgments. Okay, but I think this is worth examining whether this is true. I think in the background of such a view is an assumption or a conviction, whether spoken or unspoken, acknowledged or unacknowledged, that moral judgments are arbitrary and subjective. They're often not based on anything as objective as provable facts. And therefore, if they're acknowledged at all, they should be relegated to the realm of private and interior subjective convictions. They, they don't have public standing. They can't get into the space where the law makes judgments. So I, I think that's a questionable assumption. And actually, if you begin to think about it, that it's hard to sustain. So what I'd set before us in this talk is the task of addressing what we mean, first of all, when we say that one is making a judgment, and related to that, in what sense being judgmental should be regarded as a sin, or wrong, or a vice, and then how this is related to law, and also to contemporary claims about truth, tolerance, and moral relativism. That's really the second part of the talk we'll, we'll get to moral relativism, and hopefully I will go fast enough in the first part that we'll have some time for the second part. So the first part is about judgments. What are judgments? If being judgmental is a vice, does that mean that every judgment that we make is an, a vicious act? Now, it, it seems not, because most people have no problem accepting that there are, for example, scientific truths that we can know as valid in all places and at all times. So I don't think normally when we are taking up this question about whether it's okay to make judgments, we're necessarily engaging a kind of theoretical or universal philosophical skepticism about whether we can know anything at all, know any truths at all. Now, there are maybe some people who would want to hold that very difficult, skeptical position. Uh, you sometimes encounter arguments like that 
but usually people will accept that there are at least some scientific or, for example, mathematical truths out there, truths that we can know. Okay, let me bring St. Thomas Aquinas into the picture here, because I think he helps us understand what is the mind doing when it knows the truth, and how is that related to making judgments? So we're not here yet getting into moral judgments, we're just, just talking about judgments in general. So Aquinas, the great medieval philosopher and theologian, who was also a Dominican and is the patron of the Thomistic Institute, so I mean, I, you had to know that you were going to hear a little Aquinas in this talk, or at least maybe some, your friend brought it here and, and you had no idea what you're getting yourself into, but okay, so hopefully no surprise that there's a little Aquinas showing up. Aquinas, following Aristotle, teaches that there are two principal acts of our minds. And this is a bit of a simplification philosophically, but hopefully not too bad for the purposes of our discussion tonight. So the first act of the mind is called simple apprehension. You grasp what a thing is. You apprehend what it is. So for example, you encounter Fido, Spot, Rover, and you apprehend that all three are dogs. So there's an act of abstraction going on there. We could get into that in Aquinas' philosophy of mind. You're abstracting the idea or essence of dog, dogness, from this particular dog, Fido, for example. Okay, that's the first act of the mind, and we're not really talking about that in this talk. Then there's the second act of the mind, and this is what the Thomist tradition calls judgment. This involves joining and separating things. That is, making distinctions and also putting things together. So, in a sentence, you have a subject and a predicate. And classically speaking, Aquinas would say, you're making an, an affirmative or negative judgment about whether you can attribute this predicate to this subject. So that's a judgment about whether the sentence is true, whether it corresponds to reality. So for example, to say, Fido is angry, or this dog is angry. So that requires you to know what a dog is, and also what being angry is, and also, more fundamentally, making a judgment about this dog being angry, in fact. And in fact, more fundamentally, one makes a judgment about reality when you say something like, dogs exist and unicorns do not. At least as far as I know. Haven't found one yet. Okay, so this, this kind of judgment, now this, this sounds very basic. It's maybe very philosophical. We're gonna get to the law in just a moment here. This kind of judgment is one of the fundamental aspects, Aquinas thinks, of being rational. Which means being able to recognize with your mind reality around you and to understand it in some way. And in fact, I think you could make the claim that no science, in the modern sense of that term, no modern science would be possible if we could not make these kinds of basic judgments. So it's it's intrinsic to being a rational being to have this kind of act of the mind. And we could even 
talk about, for example, a fundamental judgment of existence, that something exists, as being like the most basic judgment to make about reality. All right, enough about this little detour into philosophy about judgments. What about the judgments you find the law making? So let's think about that. If you are going to trial, the goal of any trial is not just that there are findings of fact, there are going to be findings of fact, but also conclusions of law, and that these will culminate in a final judgment, which is a resolution of the matter as a whole. And that's what a judge issues at the end of a trial, a judgment, and then an order, which is what must happen as a result of the judgment. And I think we could also speak about the law more generally making judgments. Certainly, if you're a lawmaker, if you're crafting a law, you are inevitably making judgments about things. You're making judgments about what is good for the community and what is bad for the community in order to order the life of the community that you're making the law for. So you can even take a very neutral example in our contemporary legal landscape, something like environmental regulations. Now, you might encounter some people who might be tempted to say, oh, you know, environmental regulations are just justified by factual statements or scientific statements, things like high carbon emissions decrease air quality. That's just a neutral statement. Can't we just validate that using the scientific method? But in fact, especially when you put them into an environmental regulation, that is make them a part of the body of law, you are now making a judgment that one should not degrade the air quality with carbon emissions. In fact, if you're trying to discourage carbon emissions, that is at least implicitly what you've decided to judge, that carbon emissions are bad. Or to put it another way, it's a kind of way of saying something like this. A healthy environment is a part of the common good, and the community as a whole should take responsibility for the common good for the environment, and certain actions or activities harm the environment and therefore should not be done, while others are helpful to the environment and they should be done. So we are going to craft regulations to discourage the harmful and encourage the helpful activities. From a Thomistic perspective, that is always carrying within it a judgment. It's a judgment about what will be good for the community or good for the environment. Now, you might say, okay, I, I'm with you so far, but this is still not yet a moral judgment. I would say, well, wait a second. In our culture, is there not a kind of implicit moral judgment about polluters? I think there kind of is. Um, I can tell you, now I'm older than most of you. I went off to college from, I grew up in Washington State. I went to college in Southern California. Southern California was much 
further ahead of Washington State back in those days in environmental uh, sensitivity. So like the issue of water conservation, very important in dry Southern California, not very important in rainy Washington State. So that was an issue I just had no, no awareness of really, but also even just recycling. You know, we had a trash bin and a recycling bin, which probably doesn't surprise any of you. In, in your dorm room, there were two bins, one, one black, one blue. Okay, then I went to the East Coast for law school, and I showed up at my law school at what should be a very progressive institution. After four years of being trained to recycle my aluminum cans, and there were no recycling bins in the dormitories. No recycling bins anywhere at the university. And I felt so guilty throwing an aluminum can into the trash. Have you ever had that kind of experience where like you just can't find a way to recycle it and you have to throw it away? And then you, you're like, gosh, that really, that feels bad that I had to do that. I think that's not wrong that you feel that way. It's also not simply wrong that we would have a kind of norm in our community, you might call it a moral norm, that we want to encourage people to recycle because we think it's good for the environment. Or that you would even perhaps be shamed if your friend came in and, and found the aluminum can in your trash bin instead of in the recycling bin. Okay, maybe this is a very lightweight sense of moral. But it, I think it becomes even more clear when you think of the criminal law. Some actions are not only forbidden, but are punished by the law. And punished not with just like a fine, but even like by imprisonment. This is a very personal punishment. And it implies a judgment about the action for which you are being punished. So as you know well, the criminal law says that you must not kill an innocent person. And if you do, you'll be punished and usually quite severely. Why is that? Well, it's partly because we want to prevent you from hurting other people in the future. But not only that, because the law considers it wrong to murder and just to punish a murderer. And it's not just deterrence about future wrongdoing or rehabilitation of the offender. We do have a sense, maybe it's not as strong as it used to be in our legal system, but there is, I think, I think still a sense of some measure of justice in meeting out a punishment that fits the crime. So for example, these kinds of things do occasionally happen. We might discover a 90-year-old who is uh, a murderer, the evidence finally comes to light that this elderly man, for example, has, has committed a murder years ago. He's now in a wheelchair. We know he's incapable of doing it again. He's also probably far too along in his life to expect rehabilitation. Um, and nonetheless, the law will bring him to trial. It will bring him to trial. It may impose a sentence that then is commuted or mitigated, but we recognize that justice, in a sense, needs to be done insofar as there is a condemnation of that past evil act. And so that kind of justice being done for the 90-year-old murderer can't really be understood as 
prevention or rehabilitation, but making a just judgment that it's good for our community to do that. I would contend that actually it's very hard to come up with examples of laws that don't make judgments, by which I mean that don't have implicit in them that some things are good and should be done, and other things are bad and should be avoided. So here's the key point of what I've been building up to. The law is full of these kinds of judgments. And also, according to Aquinas, I think it's a strongly defensible position. This is also the essence of a moral judgment. So a moral judgment is effectively saying the same thing. And in fact, I think in American culture, although we don't usually see it this way, uh, or put it this way, Americans in particular, it seems to me, regard the law as a kind of moral teacher. So we tend to think that what the law permits is morally acceptable, and what it forbids is morally unacceptable. So this brings me to my capital point for this first part of the talk, which I, you know, maybe I'm just repeating myself, but just to underscore it and make it very clear, for Aquinas, there is not a radical difference between the kind of act that our mind makes when we judge that something exists or is the case, and when we judge what is good for that thing, that kind of being, and that in fact, the law is also doing this all the time. So you have like a judgment about reality, Goldie the goldfish exists. Goldie the goldfish is alive. Goldie is colored gold. Those are judgments about facts, you might say. And they lead to judgments about what is good for that being. It's bad for Goldie to take her out of her tank. It's really bad for Goldie to flush her down the toilet. So these are judgments about what ought to be done if you want to preserve Goldie's life. And in fact, both kinds of judgments, that she exists and that it's bad to take her out of the tank, are judgments about reality. Our minds are judging something about the world around us and we're grasping what we should do in response to our acknowledgement of that reality. So my claim here is that it's normal and in, in fact inevitable as a part of rational life that we're going to be making judgments like this. Judgments about reality around us that lead to judgments about what should be done. And in fact, it's a, it's a part of the structure of the human mind, you might say, the structure of a, of a rational being. And this is fundamentally what a moral judgment is. It's a judgment about what is good and should be done and what is evil and should not be done. Okay, now, at this point, maybe I should interpose uh, an objection. Maybe I won't answer it right away, but we could come, come back to it in the Q&A period. Um, most people, when they hear the title like law and morality, or when they say something like the law should not legislate morality, they almost always immediately jump, at least in, in typical you know, American context, it seems to me, they immediately jump to the conclusion that what we mean when we say, like, should the law legislate morality, 
is you're going to have a preacher holding up a Bible and like thumping people over the head with it, especially about sexual morality. Like that's usually immediately where people's judgments go. But before we get to that, I think it's helpful to just step back and see, okay, the domain of moral judgments is actually vastly bigger than that kind of narrow question. And it's not even a, about a religious question. You do not have to speak about religion at all. If you're talking about, for example, is it good or bad for Goldie to take her out of the tank? Or are environmental regulations good or bad? This is not a question about the Bible or about revelation. This is just a question about the human mind grasping reality and acting in response to it. That's, in a way, the, the classical position about making judgments. Okay, so if judgments are inevitable, what does it mean to be judgmental? Does that mean that there is no such thing as being judgmental? Or that it's okay to be judgmental? And here's where I think St. Thomas Aquinas can come to our help again by making some distinctions. So Aquinas develops a sophisticated account of, an, of a vice that we could call, in our contemporary terminology, being judgmental. And so I'd like to just flesh that out a little bit. Aquinas' term for this is what he calls rash judgment. So rash judgment is making a judgment, but it's not a well-founded judgment. Okay, so let's, uh, a little background on Aquinas' teaching on this vice of rash judgment, which I think helps us identify what's wrong with judgmental that is not wrong with judgment. So Aquinas teaches that as human beings, we're only able to judge what we can perceive. For example, what we can see. So we can see our neighbor's exterior actions. Our neighbor's action might be a sin, and so we can judge that that act was a sin or was wrong. But we should not presume to judge what we can't see. What is that? That's the interior movement of the heart. So here's a quote from Aquinas. Man sees what appears, but the Lord beholds the heart. For to God alone is, re is reserved the judgment of hidden things, among, among which are especially counted the thoughts of the heart. And hence, if anyone would presume to judge of these things, it is a rash judgment. And St. Thomas claims, instead of judging our neighbor's intentions harshly, we should always presume the best of our neighbor. So we should love our neighbor. We should desire his or her good. Ultimately, if he or she is doing an act that we can judge to be wrong, we should desire his or her repentance and salvation. Okay, so there's two important Thomistic distinctions here about making judgments. So the first distinction, when we speak about an act which we judge to be wrong, we're judging an act, an action, which we can observe and assess, not the moral quality of a person. So to judge a person implies making a judgment about the interior movements of the heart, and that's something that we don't have access to. 
That's God's domain. God can judge that. But at least insofar as we're private persons, we should never presume to make that kind of judgment about a person as opposed to an act. And if we do presume to make a judgment about a person without sufficient reason, it's the sin of rash judgment, or maybe what we could call in contemporary parlance being judgmental. Now, in a criminal case, of course, there may need to be some assessment of motive. That's another question. We could talk further about that. Um, and how are we going to judge motive? Well, sometimes you have direct evidence of motive when you hear the person saying why he did something, although maybe he's not being completely honest with himself or with others about his real motivation. Uh, and sometimes we infer it from his exterior actions. So the law is going to infer something about the, the intention of the person acting. But actually, we don't have direct access to that. And it's also interesting to think about the fact that, like, even for ourselves, when we commit an act that we know is wrong, often we want to justify it to ourselves. And we will come up with an explanation to ourselves for why I did that, which may not really correspond to the real reason that we did it when we're really honest with ourselves. So even we can try to deceive ourselves about the reasons for our acts. OK, the second distinction. The first distinction is between judging an act and a person. The second distinction is closely related to it. It's between, on the one hand, the objective goodness or evil of an action. You might say it's objective rightness or wrongness. And on the other hand, the subjective moral culpability of the person who does it, so the actor. We must maintain that an action can be objectively right or wrong and produces something that's good or evil. But it may also be the case that the person doing that action has little or no moral fault. Okay, so this is something that people often don't pay enough attention to, but I think we can, we can use a, an anecdote recounted by uh, the novelist Douglas Adams, which I, I really like this anecdote, uh, partly just because I find Douglas Adams to be a funny writer. Um, do you know him? He's the one who wrote, um, uh, oh, now, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the, to the Universe and a series of novels after that. Okay, so um, this is what he claims to be a true anecdote. He, made a, he, was, he was catching a train in England, I presume. He's an Englishman. He made a mistake about the, tri the time his train was departing so he found himself at the train station with time to kill. So to pass the time, he bought a newspaper, a cup of coffee, and a packet of cookies, and he sat down at a table. So then these are his words. He writes, I want you to picture the scene. Here's the table, newspaper, cup of coffee, packet of cookies. There's a guy sitting opposite me, perfectly ordinary looking guy, wearing a business suit, carrying a briefcase. Didn't look like he was going to do anything weird. What he did with, was this. Suddenly, he leaned across, picked up the packet of cookies, tore it open, took one out, and ate it. I did what any red-blooded Englishman would do. I ignored it. <laughs> I stared at the newspaper, took a sip of coffee, and thought, what am I going to do? In the end, I thought, nothing for it. I'll just have to go for it. And I tried very hard not to notice that the packet was already mysteriously opened. I took out a cookie for myself, 
And I thought, that settled him. But it hadn't, because a moment or two later, he did it again. He took another cookie. And we went through the whole packet like this. He took one, I took one. He took one, I took one. Finally, when we got to the end, he stood up and walked away. Well, we exchanged meaningful looks, and then he walked away. And I breathed a sigh of relief and sat back. A moment or two later, the train was coming in, so I tossed back the rest of my coffee, stood up, picked up the newspaper, and underneath the newspaper were my cookies. <laughs> so, okay, what happened there? Objectively speaking, Adams stole half of the other guy's cookies. Now, in a Dominican priory, that is like a grave offense. Just to... What was the other guy thinking? He was thinking the same thing Douglas was thinking, or Adams, I should say, that this guy opposite me is behaving in this outrageous manner, like outrageously wrong, brazen, open, intentional acts of theft, like right in front of me. Was Adams guilty of theft? Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. He didn't know he was taking the other guy's cookies. Now, we could still say, all right, injustice, Adams owes him half a packet of cookies. So that would restore the evil that Adams did to him, right? Which would restore the balance of justice. So even though we might say Adams does not deserve to be punished for what he did because he lacked the subjective intention to do something wrong, he did do something wrong or he did harm the other man and he owes something to him to make it up. Okay, so that we, we, this example helps us begin to slice up these scenarios and see that there may be a morally wrong act and no moral culpability for the act and still some obligation flowing from the wrong act, something like that. Okay. The Catholic moral tradition would also further distinguish between ignorance or error about a fact. So for example, I make a mistake about whether these particular cookies belong to me or to him and ignorance or error about the law itself. For example, I didn't know that stealing is wrong. So we could go further and make further distinctions about what kinds of ignorance or error count for giving you a kind of moral uh, pass or you know, mitigating your culpability. The Catholic tradition, for example, would hold that because they are so basic, we should presume that everyone with the capacity for reason, understands the fundamental precepts of the moral law. For example, that acts of murder are wrong, that theft is wrong, that lying, adultery is wrong. Or to put it generally, that everyone more or less knows that the Ten Commandments are things you shouldn't do. Okay, that's part one of my talk. It's about judgments and distinguishing moral culpability from making a judgment about an act. So I think it's very important to say a rash judgment is presuming to make a judgment about the moral culpability of a person when you don't actually have sufficient information to do that. 
but that it's still okay to make a judgment about the act. Okay, this is part two of the talk. So I think using some aspects of St. Thomas Aquinas' thought helps us understand making judgments. But now I'd like to go on to the question about whether uh, there are moral truths out there or whether we can say that actions are morally right or morally wrong or, or the counterclaim. Some might claim that actions cannot be morally wrong in themselves. And this brings us to the question of moral relativism. Okay, so relativism, broadly speaking, comes in a bunch of different varieties. Many of them can be found on contemporary university campuses. So you've probably encountered claims like this before. So for example, what is sometimes called cultural relativism, according to this view, right and wrong depends on what the dominant culture says, or what you were conditioned to believe by social, religious, and cultural forces. So this kind of view would contend there's no standard of right and wrong that transcends your culture. It's culturally, all culturally dependent. Okay, then there's historical relativism, which is like a close relative. Um, this would argue that right and wrong depends on what the mores of a certain historical period are. And the examples commonly used for this kind of claim would be something like, well, a lot of people thought that slavery was wrong in the 18th, or was, was acceptable in the 18th century. Uh, and now we see that it's definitely wrong. So um, some people even here in Washington, D.C., not far from where we're standing now, even praised slavery as a positive good in the 19th century. Today, you can hardly find anyone in Washington, D.C. who would deny that it's gravely wrong. I think, thanks be to God, uh, that's the case. Now, it would be disturbing if we did find some people like that. Maybe there are a few out there, uh, but not very many compared to the middle of the 19th century. And this is posited as evidence that there are no claims to moral rightness or wrongness that transcend a given historical period, because we do see some, some judgments changing. In law schools in particular, you sometimes encounter forms of legal positivism. Radical forms of legal positivism hold that right and wrong depends on what the positive law says. And that's all. There's nothing beyond what the positive law says. Now, not all forms of legal positivism maybe go this far, but some strong forms of it tend towards this view. So for example, if the Supreme Court declares there is a new right to do X, then doing X must be morally acceptable. It's just the positive law. Or Congress passes a new, a new statute saying that, or a constitutional amendment, or something like that. You could ask about critical theories of law. They're, these have been around in law schools before. They, they, they're much more widely known now. But uh, when I was going through law school back in the 19, early 1990s, um, critical theory was, was already uh, very much present and, and known. And it's often close to some of these claims about cultural and historical relativism, you know, making claims about um, we need to, uh, well, it, uh, perhaps we can get into that more if you'd, if you'd like to as, as we go forward. All of these, what's, uh, because we're running out of time, what's, what's central to all of these views about relativism? It's, it's that there's no, according to them, there's no unchanging 
non-arbitrary standard of right and wrong. And therefore, all moral claims are relative to culture or historical context or language or legal regime, etc. Okay, what kind of answer can be made to relativism? Let me give you four quick replies, just for the sake of time. The first reply. The fatal flaw of all forms of relativism, and I'm far from the only person to have noted this, is that they contain an internal contradiction. They assert the proposition that there are no truths that hold always and everywhere, and they claim that that is a truth that holds always and everywhere. So that's, a, that's what philosophers call the problem of self-reference. Uh, the proposition itself is internally contradictory. Second problem. While there might be some superficial evidence that seems to support cultural and historical relativism, for example, that there have been disagreements across cultures and across historical periods about particular moral questions like polygamy or slavery. The relativist argument ignores the broader and deeper agreement that you find about moral principles, typically, for example, about like not killing innocent people, for example. Third point, why should the fact that some people or even some whole cultures have made excuses for grave moral wrongs lead us to conclude there, that there are no such thing as moral wrongs. The fact that some people, even lots of people, have been wrong does not mean that there is no possibility of articulating a standard of right and wrong. Also, I think it's helpful to, to note, we shouldn't conflate the moral status of social or cultural conventions. For example, um, in some cultures, belching at the table is extremely rude. In other cultures, it might be actually necessary for social etiquette. So obviously, there are variations in, in that, uh, across that level of moral judgments. We shouldn't confuse that with deeper moral principles like the direct and intentional killing of, of the innocent is wrong. In fact, I think the relativist argument deliberately obscures these distinctions, claiming that because some moral censures are conventional, and because we can find examples of some socially sanctioned wrongdoing, therefore there are no enduring moral principles whatsoever. This leads me to the fourth point, which is that the relativist must claim, in order to sustain the relativist position, the relativist must claim not only that one is sometimes determined by historical period or ambient culture, but that one is always determined by it. Because on the relativist account, all moral claims are historically or culturally conditioned. But this seems plainly to be false, because we can come up with lots of examples of people challenging moral wrongs in their own time. And they do so by appealing to universal moral principles. 
So they're not merely claiming that we should apply a different rule some other, from some other time period or from another culture. They simply assert, this is unjust. And how would that kind of act be possible if moral principles are always conditioned by the historical period or the cultural framework in which one is raised or formed? I think we see from that that it is possible in a way to step out of your historical period or step out of your cultural context and make a judgment of it based on principles of justice which the mind is capable of grasping. And some people might have a hard time seeing that because of their cultural conditioning, but it's not impossible to do. And the relativist position needs to, needs to be able to sustain the claim that it is in principle impossible to do. And that there are no such like places from which you could make an objective moral assessment. Okay, these are theoretical philosophical arguments about moral relativism. Uh, but I'd like to add a fifth point here, which is that I think that in practice, there are no true moral relativists. That even moral relativism itself is making a moral judgment, which it tries hard to camouflage as something else. It's making a judgment about all those judgmental people out there who believe in absolute moral truths. Now, as a Thomist, this is unsurprising because according to St. Thomas Aquinas, moral judgments are judgments about what is good. And there is an unbreakable metaphysical link if, we, if you wanted to go into the philosophical basement, you know, foundations, maybe that's a better way of putting it, the philosophical foundations of this talk. It's about the metaphysical link between being and goodness. So that sounds like a very abstract philosophical topic, but it actually cashes out directly in the subject that we're talking about here. Um, insofar as something exists, it's good. To be is good. And in fact, everything in a certain way aims at its own perfection. And this is how we see the kind of naturally perceptible dynamic of a kind of moral judgment uh, in things. Like, it's good for Goldie to swim and find food and mate. For Aquinas, the very structure of our desiring and of our action necessarily implies that we desire and try to obtain what we judge will be good for us, and that ultimately these desires are anchored in the kinds of beings we are. Even though, to be sure, from time to time we make big mistakes about judging what will be really good for me, often compounded by disordered desires, which Aquinas would say are the fruits of original sin in us and also of our own personal sins and vices. So we make our lives difficult because of sin that leads us to have desires for things that are not going to be good for us, uh, but that the fundamental orientation of every person is actually to reach out for what you perceive to be good. And in the end, this is what a moral judgment is. A judgment that X is good for me, or good for my neighbor, or good for my community, and hence is to be sought, and the opposite of it is to be avoided. So, in a way, the deepest and most metaphysical response 
to the problem of moral relativism is that it's inevitable. It's an inevitable fact of reality that all persons will orient themselves to something they think is good. And in actual practice, they will inevitably make claims on others, even demands on others, with respect to what they grasp as good. So that notwithstanding our own culture's profession of non-judgmental relativism, in fact, we make all the time judgments about what is good, and these are not merely factual or scientific or pragmatic, but moral. So that the conclusion in the end is, I don't think it's even possible to find a practical relativist. You can find a theoretical one, but not a practical one, because it's just a part of the nature of our being. And also about the nature of the law. So let me conclude uh, with this. The law is about pursuing the common good of the community. How do we, as a community, decide what we should do? In a classical conception, uh, like Aquinas's, this is what politics is for. Politics is not the vying of different parties for power. It's the common work of a group to determine what will be good for the group which requires actually interaction with each other and coming to some kind of common uh, decision about it. And what is just and unjust, that's a part of that judgment about the common good. What will lead to flourishing and happiness in our individual lives and in our common life together? There will be disagreements about these kinds of questions. A healthy political culture aims at reasoned deliberation, and so reasonable disagreement, like disagreement using reason, making arguments about what is good and what we should do. The difficulty about the discourse of moral relativism is that it makes that process harder insofar as it suggests that we're unable to make judgments about what is really good or it camouflages those judgments behind other claims. And then politics becomes about not the exercise of reason, but the exercise of will and of political power. And that is degrading to the activity of politics. It makes it difficult and even dangerous. So let me conclude with a quotation from one of my great heroes, John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, uh, he lived through both the tyranny of the Nazi regime and also the tyranny of communism imposed by the Soviet Union on Poland. And so having lived through two different totalitarian regimes, he was especially sensitive to the dangers of the corruption of a belief in objective truth for politics. So this is a quotation from his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, uh, with which I'd like to conclude. So John Paul II. Totalitarianism arises out of a denial of truth in the objective sense. He thinks that it's relativism puts you on the track to totalitarianism. If there is no transcendent truth in obedience to which man achieves his full identity, 
then there is no sure principle for guaranteeing just relations between peoples. Their self-interest as a class, group, or nation would inevitably set them in opposition to one another. If one does not acknowledge transcendent truth, and he has in mind here a truth that can ground moral judgments, then the force of power takes over, and each person tends to make full use of the means at his disposal in order to impose his own interests or his own opinion with no regard for the rights of others. I think John Paul's insight is that a crisis of truth can lead to a crisis of democracy and ultimately to a crisis of freedom because in the absence of some objective truth, you can no longer make an appeal to an argument or a reason to resolve these disagreements. Ultimately, they have to be resolved by an exercise of power. And that puts you on the road to totalitarianism in his view. I think that is also inimical to the life of the university, which exists not to be in the service of power, but in the service of the truth. Pursue knowledge of the reality around us that our minds are made to know that reality. And of course, someone somewhere once said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Father Dominic, for that talk. That was wonderful. Um, so I have a question. I think that what you concluded with about no one actually being a moral relativist um, is true. Um, there's a line of thinking that I've heard that says that uh, because law and politics are the way that we as a society discuss what is good for uh, our society, um, and because in the United States we have uh, a limited vision of what politics can accomplish and fixed limits on what can be politically discussed, that this sort of forces down, maybe gradually and over time, a limited vision of what say is good and bad in society. And so that this sort of abbreviated false moral relativism was inevitable with the American liberal system. Yeah. I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a you know, nicely summarized, very um, significant contemporary you know, argument or discussion, point of discussion. Um, so the the essence of the claim is something along the lines of, you know, by, by making the political process about the avoidance of um, the maximization of individual liberty and the avoidance of making strong claims about what is really good, then we're, we're going to devolve into this kind of uh, system uh, or this kind of, you know, this kind of moral relativism. I, I'm not sure that that quite follows. Now, they're, they're, the argument is complex, um, so it, it deserves you know more unpacking. But uh, the you know the classical say American liberal you know conception is not that there are no moral truths, um, but that we may need to limit the sorts of um, 
sorts of things that government is going to be responsible for safeguarding. So there are certain goods that the polity is supposed to act in favor of, and there are others that it should leave to the sphere of private action, for example, or other, you know, it's not necessarily just purely individual action. It might be communitarian action that's not in the realm of government action. Um, so for example, voluntary associations like a church or a Boy Scout troop or something like that. Um, and that I think, uh, you know, so I think sometimes the, the argument, the anti-liberalism argument is maybe um, too, uh, attacking too facile a version of, of liberalism or, or could be, you know, that, that there, it's a more complicated case that I think liberalism in some, in its better versions, uh, puts forward. Um, and, you know, I think it's in, it, certainly it's in Aquinas also that you don't want the, there are some goods that pertain to, there are various levels of, of, um, you might say realities, beginning with an individual, then the family, then the, you know, the neighborhood or the city or the tribe. Um, and then, you know, now by the time you get to a city, you're certainly talking about something that's governed by a political power, you know, or political process. The nation might be bigger, but then you might have like the supernatural reality of the church. And that is bigger than a nation. And in fact, it, you know, extends through time into the past and into the future. Um, and is governed in a supernatural way by something that isn't simply the state. Often the conversation jumps right, right there to like church state questions or religion, you know, government questions. Um, but Aquinas was certainly aware of that. And the Catholic church has been thinking about that for a long time. And Aquinas, I think also recognizes like, okay, there's a legitimate domain of, of goods that are governed by, you know, by an individual or by a family, um, which, the government should respect and should not intrude upon. And also religious claims transcend what is entrusted to the state. Um, now, maybe you could say, well, the state needs to acknowledge those claims, whereas the liberal state precisely doesn't acknowledge those claims or remains agnostic about them. But I don't think that necessarily leads you into relativism. At least I don't think that the argument is a short leap you know, from one to the other. Yes. Uh, thanks for talking. I'm wondering a little bit about the idea of that, that, uh, the idea of action is ordered toward the perfection of the thing's identity, which is of course based on just the natural law. Uh, the idea of that providing a, an escape from relativism. Because it seems that humans are somewhat different from fish in the sense that we make decisions about what is correctly ordered to our ends. And it seems that we could characterize those decisions as self-interest, and so we would say, well, those decisions and those judgments of what is correctly ordered to our ends and what our ends are change across time and very important in culture. And even if we said they didn't, you know, it turned out that we could perform some empirical study and find that we always made the same decision as to what ultimately lies in self-interest. 
we might still not be left with something transcendent because it might turn out that we just discovered something like the evolutionary nature of humans or the character of mind of humans. We still, so to speak, be trapped within the structure of our own minds. Um, so I'm curious if there's, if there's a way to go from the notion that we are perfecting ourselves to the notion that this is something transcendent rather than the relative or fixed. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so maybe to just step back and um, re-articulate the position that I was laying out as, as Aquinas's, and then uh, maybe you could help me see where the traction of your objection uh, comes in. So I think, um, you know, yes, it's true that um, a, an animal has a lower sphere of, of activity than a rational animal. Well, we're animals too, Aquinas would say. You know, he would point that out. We're just rational animals. So we have a, we have a dimension of our, of our being that is precisely our ability to know and choose uh, to provide for ourselves in a way that animals don't, um, and to provide by way of reason, by way of judgments. Uh, but that in a lot of respects, we have the same natural inclinations, he would say. So the first natural inclination, as Aquinas enumerates it, would be like to stay in being. And you find that is true even of rocks. In a certain sense, the rock doesn't want to get destroyed. It, you have to exert a lot of energy on the rock uh, to break it apart. Um, and likewise, plants behave in that way to try and keep themselves in being. Animals do too, and we do. And I think that's, that's very basic and widespread. And people may, in rare cases, act against you know, that, that inclination, but it doesn't mean that it's that it, you know, often that requires quite a, quite a force of decision. Um, then, you know, further inclinations would be like to, to stay in being, to nourish yourself, to reproduce, to raise offspring. We do those things too. We seem to have an inclination to them. doesn't mean that we don't exercise our rational judgment about them. Uh, but broadly speaking, we do seem to have like our, the trajectory of our being leads us in, in, that, uh, in that direction. Now, what's peculiar to human beings is that unlike animals, we can reflect on what will lead to our perfection. And so we can plan and provide and choose. Uh, and we recognize that sometimes, you know, we get that wrong. But we, I mean, Aquinas does think that it's like a fundamental structure, even of our decision, you know, our ability to make decisions, that we have to we always will choose something that we, we regard in some measure as good. That like metaphysically, it's not possible for us to do that, to choose something that we don't regard as good in some respect. So even somebody who chooses to do what he knows is an evil act is doing it because doing that evil act, which he recognizes perhaps as evil, he regards as good for him in some way. Even somebody committing suicide, for example, or damaging his body is recognizing that that somehow is a good, like ceasing to exist would be better for me than living in the pain that I've got right now, for example. And that that metaphysical structure, this, this is what we're talking about, about making a moral judgment. I don't know, have I answered your question or replied to it? I don't know, not quite, maybe. I mean, yes, but it still seems that 
in that we can have a difference of opinion. And they might make it very hard to figure out what nourishes us or what keeps us in beings. And that you could, in fact, always be making a judgment that you thought was good, but that that wouldn't really change the fundamental point of relativism, namely that what we happen to think is good might always be relative. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, now I think, so, um, I think I can take on board a lot of what you just said which is, and it depends on what you mean by relativism. So you might say it's hard for us to judge in a particular case what is really good. And Aquinas says that very explicitly. He thinks that the principles are knowable, that like the more abstract and general you make the principle, the more clear it is. And then we immediately recognize it. So the most general principle in moral things is good is to be done and evil is to be avoided. Okay. Our mind immediately grasps that, okay? There's no problem with that. And I think, you know, now maybe the relativist would, would want to attack that position. I don't think that's going to work to attack that position. I think what I hear you saying is, okay, fine, I'll give you that principle. But now, like, let's make it a little more definite. And the more definite we make it, the much harder it is to make a judgment about whether this thing is good or bad. And Aquinas says that also very explicitly. He says the more you descend into particulars, the more... Uh, difficult it is to make those judgments and the more contingent they become. So that's not to say that we're trapped in moral relativism. We can still make some judgments. Uh, it just becomes harder to make particular judgments. And he thinks that the natural law is in often just a very general guide. And this is why also he thinks positive laws are really important. So he doesn't think that natural law is enough for you, for any political culture. You need positive laws because you need to make very definite prescriptions uh, that are probably much more detailed than what any kind of natural law reflection could get you. Now, what he will say is, if you make definite prescriptions that are directly at odds with one of the more general principles, then you've gone wrong. And then that particular law is wrong. Um, so he wants to preserve the category of general principles um, while acknowledging difficulty in making particular judgments. Um, sir. So I, I, um, I have somewhat similar question. Um, so, first of all, I think the framing of, of the conversation um, has, that's such that it appears that there's like folks who are moral relativists and those who are not. And perhaps I will try to make a case for people in the middle right, and what they might say. Um, and so, so, in relation to the first part of the talk on whether or not there's a difference between the sort of legal judgments and moral judgments, you Correct me if I'm wrong, you somewhat said that because you want that much of a difference. And I think an argument for a difference is well, for some legal judgments, like judgments about what law should be and how to apply it, we can just do a utilitarian analysis, right? We don't have to so make a geological argument as to what is good, like a good act. We can just look at the problem. Like, is this, does this work for the greater, the greater number of people? And so instead of making like a moral judgment, well, you could argue that utilitarian judgment is a moral judgment. Yeah, I was just going to make that argument. Yeah. <laughs> but but I guess I guess many people would find that pessimistic about about that sort of thing. Um, and then the the second objection the person who's somewhat in the middle might have is, well, yes, there is objective moral truth, but what is the source of that objective? 
right? So I agree with you. There's objective moral truth. Well, like, we could disagree on what our objective moral truth is because we think we come from different sources. And so if it's re if it's hard for us to like grasp what the objective moral truth is, and even harder to distill those like broad abstract principles into substantive law or policy. Because it is so hard, it might be better, in fact, it might be the more moral position to not even have an argument at all. Yes. And instead, just like, let everyone do what they think is right. So, so what would you say to this? Yeah, those are, those are great arguments. So thank you. Um, I think, in a way, we can connect what you were saying uh, to the first question, which is about, like, well, what kind, of, what kind of system of government should we have? What kind of laws should we have? Should we have laws that try to work out all the moral consequences of every, you know, and prescribe every, um, every moral act, like either say that it should be done or should not be done. Um, and obviously, you know, it's very rare to find a legal system that tries to do that like all the way down, you know, so it's possible for us to agree, like lying to your mother is bad. And also we don't want the law to punish you for lying to your mother. You know, we, we want to leave that to the, your, you work that out with her, but we can still acknowledge that that's a bad thing to do and tell you not to do it, but we're not going to punish you for it. So it's not the domain of law uh, to get into that. So I don't think there's anything uh, necessarily incompatible with, with recognizing that there may be a zone of moral judgments um, that the law doesn't necessarily immediately enforce. Um, and in fact, you do find ver variations across human cultures and across historical periods about the kinds of things that they think the law should morally enforce. Uh, but those variations don't necessarily mean that there are no moral judgments or that there are no such thing as moral judgments. I think it's actually legitimate for different cultures. Even, you know, today we could divide the room in half and we could end up with different judgments about exactly what should be prescribed or not prescribed, uh, even though there is complete agreement about the, the moral principles. So, for example, um, you know, there have been cultures uh, and historical periods, even in Christian contexts, where prostitution is not not illegal or at least not um, not strongly discouraged uh, it's kind of tolerated and then other places where it's definitely been uh, prohibited so I lived for three years in Switzerland in a Catholic canton of Freiburg okay this has never gone through the Protestant Reformation it's remained a Catholic canton from the beginning it's a very strange place for Americans to live because there's no separation of church and state which would like we just it's a democracy. It's like a, almost a direct democracy. It's very democratic and very like unitary church state, um, at least officially. Now that's kind of faded away in say the last 30 years, but only relatively recently has that happened. Um, so the, the public hospital is a Catholic hospital. The public schools are Catholic schools. They teach the catechism in the public schools. The bishop oversees the teaching of the catechism in the, in the public schools. The main event of the year for the city is the Feast of Corpus Christi when the bishop celebrates mass in the center of the city with, and then they have a Eucharistic procession through the streets with the local militia. Like, so it's like, <laughs> this doesn't make sense to Americans. Okay, there is a street where all the prostitution houses are. This is an extremely traditionally Catholic area. From the Middle Ages, they have had the, the quarter where prostitution is at least legally tolerated. In fact, there's a registration system for prostitution. It's absolutely, I think it's repulsive, terrible. Uh, and probably a lot of the women there, it's, I think it's almost all women, um, are sex trafficking victims. You know, So it's really ugly and bad. 
Um, but you can, now there are different, so there are different political cultures today that make different judgments about, say, is prostitution bad? And um, should the law prohibit it? And it, they might make the judgment that prostitution is morally wrong, but we're going to tolerate it legally. I, I'm not sure I'm even directly, but, my, but let me just say one more thing, which is my claim is that the law always is making a moral judgment. So that, like, if I just want to be brutally, you know, straightforward about the, the argument, I think every law is making a moral judgment. Um, and there, you can't come up with one that isn't making a moral judgment. And so moral here means concerning what is judged to be good or bad. It doesn't mean, like, moral in the strong sense of, like, oh, God spoke and I heard that you're going to go to hell if you do this. That's not what I mean by moral. It's a lighter sense of moral. It means about what is good and what is bad, what is to be done and what is to be avoided. Aquinas thinks that that is what moral is, that that's the true sense of moral. And that God reveals something about that to us also, but we can know it by like our encounter of, of reality. So there's some aspects that are being by divine revelation, but there's going to be a lot of aspects that are not, that are knowable by human reason and some aspects that we're going to disagree about. So... I think the, the, the example you gave is an excellent one because that community sounds to me like one that is maybe pretty homogeneous and has had yeah. sort of a culture over time that is hostatic, but has developed within itself. I, I think it gets more problematic in a pluralistic society where you have people who come in with different like moral points of view. Yes. And this is where you have the tension. And that's where liberalism, I think, uh, you know, is at its strongest. So liberalism would say, like, okay, we've got lots of different religious groups. We're, the government's not in a position to adjudicate between them. So we should make laws that um, are with respect to kind of publicly knowable things. And we're going to leave a zone for those religious groups to pursue the goods uh, with respect to their faith that, that, is, you know, that they recognize. But we don't want to put the government in charge of that. I mean, I think that's the basic, um, that's the basic view of the American founding. Well, you know? The objection that a lot of people have is in the public, public sphere, more and more arguments are being made based on a moral foundation. More and more people are saying, no, my moral principles require me to save the shoe be wrong. Um, and so that's, that, that sphere is expanding constantly. Yes. That's where the objection is yeah, yeah. And I think, well, I mean, I think it's, on the one hand, I think it's, it's acceptable. I mean, I, I understand what the, like, the American perspective is, which I just tried to summarize. Like, we've got diverse, and really, it did come out of the, the, the experience of diverse religious claims. You know, for the most part, um, for the most part, pro different Protestant claims. So these are pr different Protestant groups competing with each other. Um, then also some Catholics thrown in and some Jews thrown in for the most part. Uh, not a lot of other religious groups, but now of course we're much more pluralistic uh, with respect to that. And we certainly can understand that you might have a religious group that is making a very strong moral claim, like um, you know, God told me to X, you know, and the rest of the group is like, no, X is really bad. You know, we can't have you doing X all the time, so the law's gonna gonna forbid that. And there, so can, how do we adjudicate different claims? Like, oh, well, Christianity says that um, polygamy is bad. Uh, but some 
other religious sects say polygamy is good, uh, or at least permitted. And how are we going to adjudicate? I think there are ways to, to adjudicate that, maybe just on the basis of natural reason. Also, then, like, at least maybe it's not the zone of legal judgments or the right place for the government to make a judgment. But I think you can dispute, like, I'd be, be high, if you want to defend, you know, like a, a, a moral view that the Catholic Church uh, disagrees with, I think, the, you know, a Catholic, a Catholic theologian can get into an argument with you about that, about the, like, the justification for your position. Um, maybe it's based on divine revelation, and we'd have to come to some common agreement about what we commonly accept about divine revelation, or, or on the basis of some natural, you know, naturally accessible truth. I mean, obviously, I mean, the clear answer is just don't, you know, only focus on the immoral actions themselves. But I feel like there's a very fine line between, like, like, uh, like, 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 if you're trying to fraternally correct someone who might fundamentally have like a, a serious moral disagreement with something, uh, I don't know. I've always found that it's like hard to like stay just in the realm of like the act itself versus like your uh, art is conformed to the, the completely wrong thing. So I guess, yeah, from a practical standpoint, like how, how, do you, how, how can you navigate that? Well, I think, you know, the, the classic Catholic recommendation is hate the sin and love the sinner. I think that's a really important principle to keep in mind if you're talking about fraternal correction. So fraternal correction, just for those of you who may not be familiar with the terminology, this is like a St. Thomas Aquinas uses this terminology. It's a classic, classic, you know, moral act. What does it involve? It's in it, it's correcting a brother, you know, and that presupposes has to be motivated by a love for him or her. So that you really want his or her good. Now, the difficulty in that is that often when we perceive someone doing a wrong, like we become self-righteous and we actually want to like smack the other person. You know, we want to like put him in his place. And that is not a fraternal correction. Now, maybe, um, maybe sometimes it's necessary to act even with anger towards someone committing an injustice. Aquinas thinks that there is a righteous anger against injustice, and that's part of what the function of anger is in us, is to respond to injustice. Aquinas thinks that's like one of the most basic dimensions of anger. Um, but also, he says, we're fallen, and so we very quickly overdo it with our anger. And also, we tend to be much more sensitive to wrongs against us than wrongs against other people. You know, So we're, we over-exaggerate the wrong done to me, and then I overreact aggressively against the person who did it. And that's not necessarily a fraternal correction. That's like a response of anger or a claim to justice. Fraternal correction is where we genuinely desire the good of the other. And so it has to be done out of charity, out of love. And that means it has to be done in a sensitive way um, where you're really trying to help the other person. And sometimes that's very hard to do. You know, it's very hard to tell someone that you love a difficult truth. 
Um, but sometimes it's the most loving thing. You know, it's like tough love, right? You know, like you have to tell your dad that he's got a drinking problem, you know? That's hard to do, and it might offend him, and it might disrupt your relationship, but maybe maybe you have to do that at some point. Um, and you, you need him to believe that you love him, and that's why you're telling it to him. I saw a question over here. Is, are we, Jen, are we, okay. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for the in-depth lecture uh, during such short time. My question is quite easy. Uh, you help us learn how to differentiate between judgment and judgmental, differentiate between a person's conduct with a person, him or herself. So my question will be like, how can we make more judgment with being less judgmental? And if I can quote the last anecdote you quote just now, like, how can we be closer to to choose with more freedom? And how can we be a more rational animal? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think this, uh, it, it's a good question. Being, so first of all, a person who cares about the truth. So like, what would be practical recommendations? Like trying to be a person who cares about the truth, who makes the truth important you know to you try to be a truthful person a truth-telling person and actually that can that can, in today's contemporary culture and in law you know in the law profession it can be challenging you know like make that make that a resolve like i am going to be scrupulously honest so that i just say the truth to people okay that's point one point two is try to really love your neighbor okay Easier said than done, of course. But asking God for help to do that is really important. He wants to give us his grace to help us to love our neighbor. I mean, this is the teaching of Jesus. This is the greatest commandment after loving God is loving your neighbor. So to be someone who speaks the truth and who loves your neighbor, I mean, if you can do those th two things together, then I think you're going to be able to do the fraternal correction and able to make judgments without being judgmental. Uh, I mean, I think often people who are very sensitive about judgments um, or are against you know, an ethos of judgmentalism feel like there's a lot of condemnation standing behind the judgment. And so that's what I'm trying to kind of suggest you shouldn't do. Your judgment should not be a condemnation. And when it's clear that you actually love the person, even if you have a truth to tell them that might be difficult for them, they're much more ready to receive that truth from you if they feel like you, you love them and you care about them. I think some of the places where this goes wrong is that it becomes like clear that you don't actually love them and that you really are just trying to control them. Like you're using truth as a weapon against them. And that's not, a, that's not good. So maybe even you should demonstrate your love first, and then you can speak the truth. Thank you. Right.